Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. An SUV crash at a primary school in Wimbledon kills two children. The architect Sir David Ajay steps away from major projects after sexual assault allegations published in the Financial Times. Local authorities call for a new raft of policies to transform council housing delivery and the Jamaican metallurgists rediscovered at the centre of modern architectural and industrial history. My name is Finn Harper. I'm an architecture critic and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's UK architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My guest this week here at Bureau in the Design District is Leo Pollock. Leo is a councillor for South Bermondsey Ward in the London Borough of Southwark. Welcome to the show, Leo. Thanks for having me. Also the uh, owner slash father of one of uh, the cats that my cat gave birth to. So who says that nepotism doesn't run rife through the London booking schedule? Sticker says meow. The outgoing chair of the Local Government Association has proposed new housing deals to spark a generational step change in council house building. Industry publication Public Sector Executive reported that James Jameson, chairman of the LJ for the past four years, set out a six-point plan at the association's annual conference in Bournemouth last week. One of Jameson's suggestions was to roll out five-year local housing deals, combining the funding from multiple existing schemes into a single flexible pot to all areas in England by 2025. He also proposed further reform of right to buy, which would see councils keep all sales receipts on a permanent basis, something he claims will enable councils to keep the earnings from selling off council homes in order to reinvest in building replacement homes. This follows on from a government announcement back in April, which allowed councils to keep 100% of funds generated by right to buy sales, but only for two years. In response to recent inflationary pressures, the outgoing chair also suggested higher grants for affordable homes to be provided by the government's Homes England Agency. Other recommendations included a government commitment to a 10-year rent deal for council landlords to allow longer periods of annual rent increases and the establishment of a national council housebuilding task force to assist councils and private sector development partners. Speaking at the conference, Jameson said, quote, housing is too often unavailable, unaffordable and not appropriate for everyone that needs it. The right to homes in the right areas can have significant wider benefits for people and communities and prevent future public service challenges and costs. Addressing the chronic housing shortage must be a national priority. Our six point plan will lead to a generational step change in council house building and give local governments the powers and funding to deliver thousands of affordable homes uh, a year at scale 
and fast. So, Leo, you were Cabinet Member for Housing in Southwark. You've been working in housing throughout your career, expert in the field. What do you make of Jameson's six-point plan? Do you think these reforms could have a meaningful impact on the delivery of new council homes, and in what way? It's a good plan. It's a sound plan. I think everybody in the housing sector is asking for a long-term rent settlement. Everybody wants grant levels to be uprated uh, against building cost inflation, which far exceeds the the general inflation that we see. Uh, Everyone wants the preferential borrowing rates through the Public Works Loan Board, which is the bit of Treasury, the Debt Management Office, that uh, funds big public sector capital projects of these kinds. Um, But generally, my, my kind of take on this is to take a giant step back and look at the firstly just the scale of housing need in this country the most sort of regularly cited study is the national housing federation's uh, study from a couple of years ago that identified eight and a half million households uh, with an unmet housing need including four over four million people who need social housing And the organisations that are in place to provide that, councils through their housing revenue accounts and housing associations operating on a non-profit basis, are at their debt limit. They are finding that all of the additional uh, statutory requirements coming forward through building and fire safety, service standards through the Social Housing Act that's coming through and the regulator that's uh, getting additional powers, the push for net zero um, and decarbonisation, um, all of these things, item by item, are extremely expensive. Um, Decarbonisation alone would cost over $100 billion for the social housing sector. And that's before you even talk about the critical need for new supply. So councils and housing associations have been locked into this sort of trickle-down housing model. Where cross-subsidy is, is the kind of expectation that sale homes help support mm. uh, social housing, uh, social house building. Um, and obviously, when you have falling sale values, interest rates going up, construction costs spiralling through the roof, uh, real challenges with workforce and material supply capacity, it doesn't sum to zero, <laughs> to put it mildly. The the model is, is bust. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why the Deluxe Select Committee now have a, a big inquiry looking at the financial sustainability of the social housing sector, I think they will likely find that the ring-fenced, self-financed model of the housing revenue account that councils use, where they have to pay for all of these things from social rents and service charges, that model is bust. And the idea of a of a self-financed HRA is a myth that needs to be bust. What all of this really points to, when you look at the scale of housing need, uh, the supply requirements that are very well established, you see the Treasury in particular exerting extreme control over over Homes England and the Department for Leveling Up and Housing, so much so that this morning, actually, it was revealed that um, there's an underspend of $1.9 just from this past year of the Affordable Homes Programme, which is quite astonishing. That's a third of the monies available for house building. And all because uh, the assumption is a lot of that money is there to support a market-led cross-subsidy model catering for the the range of housing needs across the income spectrum. Um, So for me, all roads lead to the Treasury um, and the fiscal rules that are in place, the kind of chronic underinvestment from the public sector, 
And I think this plan is one of, of many that needs to land on its feet, both in government and the opposition. Um, so there is something about um, the rules that the Treasury applies and the, the cap that it places on uh, grant funding that is in critical need to meet the housing needs of people in this country. I think it's about a quarter the size that it needs to be. And if the Treasury were to model the returns um, on social house building, they'll see huge tax receipts coming in throughout those supply chains, really significant savings to social security spending because housing benefit would be claimed to a lesser degree and, and savings across health, uh, social care, social services, you name it. This is about taking a, a genuine long-term perspective. And I think the issue here always has been that housing is the wobbly pillar of the welfare state. It, it kind of oscillates wildly between Tory and Labour governments um, in terms of approaches to land assembly, the amount of monies made available for house building, for maintenance and uh, capital investment. And it needs to be taken out of politics altogether. We need a kind of new long-term cross-party consensus. Yeah. Look, that was a, a long and highly technical answer. I think it was fascinating, though, and really sort of exposed a lot of the myths that are kind of at the heart of uh, the housing crisis and why. I just wanted to kind of dig into a couple of them that I, I didn't quite follow just to get further clarity. So one was this cross-subsidy thing. You were saying that a lot of councils, and, and, and you know, you hear this a lot as Londoner, a lot of councils build market sale homes, homes that they're going to sell for you know, full price in order to fund cheaper homes, like socially rented homes or affordable homes. Are you saying that model doesn't work at all? And if so, why are councils still pursuing it? It works when um, sale values are high and the profits that can be made from, from market sale homes can, can cross-subsidise. But um, that just simply isn't the case anymore. And I think a lot of housing associations that have invested at scale in new places across London, across England, um, are hitting the limits of of that model. But the working assumption in Homes England and Treasury has always been that that, that is the approach. And we're, we're, we're going to stick to that theory. And oh, no. on that basis, we will give you no more money. Yeah, OK. And then, then another point that relates to something that Jameson was saying is uh, this idea that councils should be able to retain 100% of the money that they get from selling off homes through right to buy permanently, rather than just for two years, as is currently the case as I understand it but isn't another alternative to scrap right by entirely or at the very least give councils the choice over whether or not they sell off a particular flat or a particular house like any other landlord um, has the choice over whether they sell the stuff they own or not would would that be more effective at maintaining council housing stock in your opinion absolutely um, I think you know right to buy the people that that like it will say that it's given millions of people access to personal wealth and also in many cases burdensome life-ruining service charges. But for me, it's the biggest domestic policy error since the war. Um, it has eaten into the overall stock of council housing. It's undone one of the great achievements of the post-war generations, which was to build good quality, secure, genuinely affordable housing that has given millions of people that foundation to to thrive in life. But with right to buy, a decision was made that this asset is no longer for future generations. Um, and it set us on this increasingly pernicious path where home ownership is everything. But with right to buy, you know, if, if you're not going to 
um, abolish it entirely. And, I, and I, it seems that both government and opposition, I don't want to go there, uh, not wanting to scare the horses, perhaps, and playing it very safe indeed. Um, this is an obvious candidate for dev devolution to to local government to have local communities have it out um, and there's lots of ways also to mitigate the impact of right to buy obviously you can remove the discounts which needs to happen i think right away um, you can introduce covenants to new right to buy leases um, that say if you want to privately rent that home you have to do so at a social rent via the council um, so many right to buy um properties are privately rented to people who would otherwise be in a council home and often three, four times what the social rent uh, would have been. Uh, and you can also cap the number of right to buy applications in any one year based on the size of the local waiting list, how many social homes were completed in the previous year. Perhaps there's lots of ways to do this, but it's deeply problematic and it makes it very hard for councils to, to plan uh, their housing around the housing needs of their residents. I mean, as I understand it, we Britain is spending billions and billions of pounds every year, tens of billions on housing benefit. And a lot of that is going not to local authorities, but to private landlords, some of whom are the beneficiaries of right to buy. And yet the headlines are focusing on these like relatively small amounts of money, one billion here, a couple of billion there, going into the housing industry. Is it what, what is that about? Why are we, we, we're happy to spend, to shovel colossal amounts of money through the housing benefit system for the benefit of private landlords, but we're not prepared to spend even a fraction of that on sorting out this, this mess in the first place by building more socially rented homes. What's that about? It's, it's the madness of the, of the UK housing economy. Um, the, the argument gets made regularly that we need a, a, a transition from benefits to bricks, uh, but we have this very expansive conception of private property rights in this country. We'll even create a publicly funded crutch um, through uh, that amount of housing benefit to to prop it up. And you know we have the least socialised, least regulated private rented sector in the OECD. I think second actually after Slovenia. The renters reform bill that's coming through, I think, is gets a nibble at that at best. Um, so I, I think we're, there's a clear case for a complete overhaul of private renting, rent controls, big expansion in social and council house building, and most importantly, the way that Treasury models um, the funding that it puts into both housing benefit and house building. If you're talking about housing, ultimately, you're talking about land to some extent and the price of land, how you buy and sell land. Um, and this is something that we've seen more discussion of from from the main parties. There was a, a land policy at the last uh, general election campaign, and more recently we've had further policies kind of trailed by the, the opposition. Leo, what is your sort of analysis of some of these kind of land price policies coming forward, and, and what do you think we should be uh, doing in Britain to, to sort out land ownership and purchase? So I think this is a key part of the expansive private property rights that we have in this country and is a, a particularly dysfunctional aspect of the housing economy that we have in, in Britain. So at present, ever since the 1961 Land Compensation Act, um, we've had this provision for uh, hope value. That's the speculative premium of, a, of an imagined planning permission that is the basis of valuing a site if a council or whoever wants to do a compulsory purchase to use that for some kind of public interest. This has become really problematic in areas where values are highest, where housing need is highest, 
because you just see runaway speculation um, of on, on land trading. Um, I'll give you an example on the Old Kent Road, which is a sort of regeneration zone in in, in Southwark. Um, there are so many sites. That's one in particular on the corner of Asylum Road. It used to be a Toys R Us. It's now a little with a car park. And the existing use value of that when it was up for sale as a Toys R Us was £5 million. And the asking price of that landowner was £25 million. And they withdrew at that point in time because they thought they could get a higher price later on. And the, the point is that the gap between that gap between 25 and 5 million pounds is value that is lost to affordable housing and community infrastructure and it necessitates in many instances gross overdevelopment and bad place There's also value that 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 little owner has done nothing to create right the value of of land getting more expensive in in Southwark is all to do with Southwark investment more people wanting to live in Absolutely. Southwark more businesses more Absolutely. bus routes and cycle lanes it's like they're gouging all of this uplift off the public sector but they've done nothing to create that wealth Absolutely it's it's deadweight value and what we've seen is both government and opposition political parties have now come to recognize this even the Tories have quietly but I think very radically uh, ceded the principle in a kind of rip-roaring amendment that's amendment 412d of the leveling up bill I'm sure all your readers will be furiously googling that right now um, that describes removing or or, or capping diminishing uh, that hope value and allowing the Secretary of State to suppress land value for the purpose of CPO um, I think Labour have gone a bit further but I think the issue with a lot of these reforms is that those valuations are still based on what the local plan says you can do on that site. And in most of those high-value, high-demand areas where affordable housing is needed the most, those those site allocations have very ambitious densities and uh, relatively modest asks of affordable housing based on what the viability of that plan um, would be. Um, And that is the basis for how a valuation would be calculated if a council were to do a CPO. So... So the more ambitious the local authority is in its local plan, the more valuable the land becomes where that plan is going to take place. And therefore, the higher the prices that the landowners are are demanding from that local authority to achieve their ambitious plan. That is the paradox, Finn. Um, So if you're going to make your your valuation method based on what the planning value in the local plan is, rather than the actual use, the most recent real use of a site, then it's not going to make a huge difference in my view. Um, But I think it's interesting to contrast with the the attitude during the kind of post-war government, where the Town and Country Planning Act in 1947 essentially democratised land use. You saw the Abercrombie Plan for the County of London. This was a radical overhaul of of land uses in in major neighbourhoods across across London. It was all premised on the idea that it would be relatively straightforward to have a simple swift and genuinely affordable uh, assembly of land and when that removal of what was the equivalent of hope value at that point in time and the introduction of of formal cpo powers that were sort of trailed during the war for military purposes when that was introduced you saw many of those uh, local authorities and development corporations tearing their way through the city Uh, so many of the council estates that we see today so many of the highlights uh, of London are the product of the progressive use of CPO. Uh, but, you know, in my patch alone, so many of the great council this estates... This is compulsory purchase orders. This is compulsory purchase orders where a council can... Buy land whether the buy landowner land, likes it or not. Even if there's an unwilling seller. 
Um, so, so many of the great estates are built by Campbell Metropolitan Borough, Denmark Hill Estate, Sydenham Hill Estate, Kingswood, are all the product of compulsory purchase. Burgess Park, which is the best park in London, all driven, uh, put together through CPO. And I think what happened at that point in time was there was a, there was a mood and appetite um, for an overhaul of some of the fundamentals of the housing and land economy. Um, Government also very cleverly set up what they described as a hardship fund for aristocratic landowners who were going to be out of pocket if their land was going to be seized. It was worth about 300 million in those days, equivalent of 11 billion today. But that was put in place to enable a smooth transition to a new land economy and, and to ensure that it wasn't frustrated in the courts. Because they called it a hardship fund, it was relatively undersubscribed. Um, so the effect of it um, <laughs> was transformative for, for many cities in, in good ways and occasionally bad ways as, as well. But I think today there is no such transitional fund proposed, treasury orthodoxy, etc. Um, and I think a lot of the, the councils who have CPO uh, powers uh, need to go on a bit of a, a, a journey to flex those dormant CPO muscles. I think also a lot of the asset managers and chartered surveyors who are involved in this stuff are are very kind of enthusiastically bought into uh, the current model. So there is a bit of a roadshow um, and a cultural shift that needs to happen to to move towards this new uh, land economy. But if you, if we can do that, then we can kind of rebuild our cities and towns and communities in a way that meets the housing needs of everybody. Um, and creates really good places. Two eight-year-old girls, Selina Lau and Nuria Sajad, died last week when a car crashed into a primary school in Wimbledon. A 40-year-old woman also remains in a critical condition. The incident is thought to have occurred after the driver of a 2.5-tonne Land Rover had a seizure at the wheel, allowing the vehicle to mount a six-inch kerb, crash through metal safety railings, knock down the school's fence, upend a brick bench, and then hit a group of Year 3 pupils. Writing in The Independent, policy correspondent John Stone argued that what we should be having is a serious conversation around the dangers posed by cars, especially SUVs, whose enormous size and weight make them an even greater risk to life. According to data from road safety charity Brake, five people are killed and around 84 people seriously injured on England's roads every single day, a rate equivalent to a fresh tragedy every 16 minutes. With the gradual introduction of road safety measures, the number of deaths has been falling in the UK since the 1960s. However, with the exception of recent lockdowns when fewer people were on the roads, progress has stalled for more than a decade. Stone puts this down to a combination of the 2010 coalition's scrapping of road safety targets and the uplift in new SUVs entering the road system, fuelled by a decade of cheap credit. By 2020, 40% of new car sales were extra-large vehicles, compared to just 20% 10 years before. These cars are two to three times more likely to kill a pedestrian in a collision compared to a regular car and are especially deadly to children who are eight times more likely to die when struck by an SUV, according to the results of a 2022 study in the Journal of Safety Research. So, Leo, what's your take on all of this? Southwark is also very bad for uh, the dangers posed by road traffic, according to Southwark News between 2018 and 2020. Uh, only the boroughs of Westminster, Lambeth and Tower Hamlets had more injuries in road traffic collisions in London than Southwark. Isn't it time for new restrictions on SUV cars uh, for everyone's safety? I think this story is obviously impossibly sad and tragic. I've got two kids and seeing pictures of 
eight-year-old girls who've lost their lives in freak circumstances like this really does have to focus minds. Um, I think it, it, it goes without saying that um, there are too many large vehicles on the streets. Um, London streets are kind of crowded real estate. You have cyclists, walkers, um, curbside that is heavily contested. Um, you see the huge efforts to introduce low traffic neighbourhoods during uh, the pandemic. Um, and you see the expansion of the ULES as well um, and the enormous organised opposition to that. But I, I think it, it kind of goes without saying, really, that there are too many large vehicles on the roads. I think the status of owning a car, I think there's often an assumption, you know, I've noticed just to, uh, in the past week, the private schools are now on holiday a couple of weeks earlier mm. than, than the normal schools. And mm. it is transforming how clear the streets are, how easier it is to, to cycle but London is going through that long process of, of trying to adapt its streets so that it's much friendlier for cyclists and walkers, um, easier to set up pocket parks and different uses of community curbside. And it's a big political struggle. We see the kind of history of, of the Dutch cities and towns it requires a lot of political commitment and uh, investment to bring about that change. Um, Southwark, certainly, we've begun a, a streets for people consultation, new strategy for how we're going to organise curbside and Southwark highways uh, over the next few years. But it's always confined by the resources that we have. But the agenda is absolutely there. And I think this this is a moment where we have to think very seriously about introducing restrictions, additional taxes and so on. Yeah, it's interesting that you pinpoint sort of um, that the private schools issue. I'm from the Midlands and in Warwick when, you know, we, I'd walk an hour to get to school in that week when the private schools were off and the state schools were still on, there were no cars, or it felt like there were no cars. The roads were just kind of clear and free. As soon as the private schools came back, it was gridlock through the entire town. And I think that does relate to this SUV things as well. Because SUVs are so much more expensive, because they are a bit of a class symbol, they are more likely to be owned by richer middle-class families. So ex-transport minister Norman Baker, who has long campaigned against 4x4s on environmental grounds, has argued that these excessively large vehicles should be made socially unacceptable. Uh, and has renewed calls for increased taxation. So suggestions of SUV restrictions have been met with hostility. Uh, some have staunchly defended their right to own these huge vehicles. I guess to some extent I can empathise with people wanting to have you know, access to a, a Nissan Micra or a small car of some kind. But why, why are people putting up such a fight for the right to own these, these giant tank cars? What's that about? Maybe it's... Parents who feel paranoid about their children, mm. um, they might own a dog. They might uh, want to hold out for the possibility of a of a holiday that requires a lot of luggage. Um, <laughs> um, but it's not just a kind of middle class, upper middle class cultural bind. I think you see a lot of people on lower incomes as well who 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 have a great attachment to their cars. And obviously, there are essential vehicle uses on on our streets. You know. From Uber drivers, um, deliveries, tradespeople, servicing buildings. We're never going to get rid of cars. What do you think of uh, those who say that we can sort of solve the SUV safety crisis through uh, sort of nudge theory? So slightly higher taxes for larger vehicles, perhaps uh, do what Paris is doing of, of introducing higher parking fees for SUVs than smaller cars. Could these kind of market meddling 
tweaks help or uh, do you think the only way to do it is more sort of heavy duty designing out of uh, large private cars from city centres entirely? Well, we wouldn't understate the impact of, of nudge measures. A lot of the uh, low traffic neighbourhoods and filters that have been introduced certainly um, during and after the pandemic have had a, a big impact on people's driving habits and their transport habits and how they plan their lives around what transport they have. But I agree with you, There is, when it comes to cars, uh, there is a, an astonishing passivity right across the British state at all, all levels, really, when it comes to trying to influence how people get around. I think one peculiarity of London as well is that you have different tiers of government, relatively bottom-up governance with the London boroughs, the introduction of things like cycle superhighways um, to get into kind of employment centres are heavily dependent on the discretion of different London boroughs that have political interests, uh, different approaches to uh, modal shift. Uh, we all know the kind of notorious route of the cycle superhighway that stops at the boundary of Kensington and mm, Chelsea. Mm. Um, so all power to the mayor to try and really push through uh, the most radical measures uh, he can uh, if if he gets a, a third term, which is looking highly likely. Elsewhere in Wimbledon, uh, with the, the tennis championships in full swing, the media has also picked up on a, an interesting battle between local residents and the All England Lawn Tennis Club. So the club uh, has commissioned the architects Allies and Morrison to draw up plans to build 38 new grass courts and an 8,000-seat show court on a neighbouring plot of land which used to be home to the Wimbledon Park Golf Club and features a landscape designed by the legendary garden designer Capability Brown. So the tennis club apparently paid £65 million to the golf club for this land, meaning that every single member of the golf club pocketed a reported £85,000 windfall. But uh, interestingly, 9.4 acres of the golf course will be converted into a park that will be owned and managed by the tennis club, but uh, publicly accessible all year round. And then the rest of it becomes this kind of 38 grass court tennis super hub. However, local residents and MPs have been mounting a legal case to oppose the development. Local Labour MP Fleur Anderson said, quote, it's blocking really valuable green space away from people who should own it, the residents. And it's the All England Club having a land grab for an industrial development and trying to make it look as though it's a nice project for a new park, which it's not, end quote. Leo this is all taking place in Merton, which I appreciate is, is not Southwark and is therefore not your, your immediate patch, but I am interested in what you make of this development. The All England Tennis Club. Wimbledon is one of these things, sort of confession time, that makes me pathetically proud to be British. Like whenever Serena Williams says it's her, her favourite tournament in the world, I feel personally complimented. Is that just me? <laughs> I don't know. I'm wearing green in honour of the championships exactly, for this exactly. recording. We're thinking of strawberries. Um but I think that this sort of um, points to the wider question of uh, golf courses in, in London. And you've had Russell Curtis on, on the show previously. Everybody who hasn't looked at his fantastic golf belt website and study ought to. The combined golf course uh, land um, coverage um, across London is larger than that. The London Borough of Brent mm. um, on very gentle, modest densities. Um, over 86,000 homes could be built uh, on those on those golf courses, three hundred and forty thousand people. That's like adding a whole extra London borough um, just on golf courses alone. And I, I did look up how many homes would be catered for on this particular golf course. It was over four hundred. Um, Merton has a very big 
council housing waiting list, doesn't have a housing revenue account, and if you had better land assembly, uh, compensation rules, uh, this is the type of site that could be brought forward for a whole variety uh, of different uses. But I think in the, in this instance, um, if Wimbledon, you know, Field England Tennis Club feel the need to expand their coverage and and they're creating a park out of that space, those are two useful things. Um, what I would say is that for golf courses in general, it is perfectly possible to significantly increase, improve the biodiversity of those sites, uh, the tree canopy coverage, and build significant numbers of new homes, as well as sometimes just cutting the number of holes um, available for playing golf, which will save golf players a lot of time, uh, which <laughs> means that they can spend it on more productive activities. It's good for the economy, is what I'm saying. Maybe we could make football pitches smaller as well and have uh, no short games. That, I draw a line at that. It's a real sport. Our next story is that Sir David Ajay has stepped back from several major roles after allegations of sexual harassment against him emerged on Tuesday the 4th of July. The story was covered in the AJ last week following an investigation by the Financial Times. The New York Times has also reported that the RIBA 2021 gold medal winning architect has resigned from his role as architectural advisor to the London Mayor Sadiq Khan, while his work designing the UK's National Holocaust Memorial has been halted. The Africa Institute in Sharjah has cancelled its major new campus project designed by Ajay Associates in the wake of the allegations, while the Multnomah County Library in Portland, Oregon, has dropped Ajay from its design team. In a statement issued by Ajay's PR team, Kendall Advisory, the celebrated architect said he was also withdrawing from other ceremonial roles and trusteeships so that the allegations did not, quote, become a distraction. The statement read, quote, Although I continue to strongly reject the very serious allegations against me, it is important that they do not become a distraction for those organisations where I hold a personal role. In order to focus on restoring trust and accountability, I have agreed to stand aside from those personal roles with immediate effect. End quote. The FT, which broke the story last week, outlined the allegations which included incidents mainly in Ghana of sexual assault and harassment, including an alleged assault in a South African airport. The architect, who was knighted in 2017 for services to architecture and had former President Barack Obama attend his Royal Gold Medal ceremony, has also been accused of sexual misconduct by three former female employees of his practice, Ajay Associates, over a number of years. In a statement to the FT, Ajay said, quote, I absolutely reject any claims of sexual misconduct, abuse or criminal wrongdoing. These allegations are untrue, distressing for me and my family and run counter to everything I stand for. But the internationally renowned architect went on to say, quote, I am ashamed to say that I entered into relationships which, though entirely consensual, blurred the boundaries between my professional and personal lives. Leo, this story has really rocked the architecture industry. It's been covered and discussed all over the place. Ajay is one of the most celebrated architects alive. Has he done the right thing to step away from these projects immediately? I don't know to what extent he stepped away or asked to be stepped away. Um, I think it probably varies from, from project to project. I think it's tragic for all the people that work at his firm who will have been putting their heart and soul into a lot of those projects. And it also points to just how fickle uh, many of the wealthier commissioners and clients of, of big projects can be. The story is, uh, sadly, a very familiar one of people who are in positions of uh, authority and don't understand the relationship that they have with people who are beholden to their authority and 
Um, and I think it's incredibly sad because he is a role model for so many people. He sort of bucked the trend of, of this architect always being a white, upper-middle-class sort. Um, these are, of course, allegations, but they need to be taken very seriously. In response to the allegations, the architecture critic Rowan Moore penned an article in The Observer titled, quote, Architecture is built on the cult of stardom. Its Me Too moment is no surprise. But not everyone agrees. Co-founder of Architects RCKA and previous guest on the London Russell Curtis tweeted, calling this statement into question. He wrote, is architecture really built on a culture of stardom? I don't think it is. There are a handful of famous architects. There are high-profile individuals in every endeavour. But these are the exception, not the norm. Leo, do you think all architecture is built on a culture of stardom as Rowan Moore seems to? Or has Russell Curtis got a point that most workers in the industry are a million miles away from the kind of celebrity culture that Ajay and his peers enjoy? Do you see these allegations as typical of kind of endemic toxic practices in the industry that are everywhere uh, or not? Well, the toxic practices you hear about all the time, and it's it's found throughout the system upstream, including obviously in the architecture schools. Um, I always found it Ironic that it was uh, the Bartlett that was sort of the focus of bullying, sexism, favoritism, alleged racism. Um, when I know for sure it's by no means the worst uh, culprit on, on that front. Um, but I think for this sort of discussion with uh, Russell Curtis and Rowan Moore, um, Russell's broadly right. I mean, the architects that I know um, get into it because they feel a great sense of mission for trying to build a better world for future generations and. They're not so much drawn to the luster of association with one of the stars. But there is also that kind of um, natural draw, the egotism uh, um, of wanting to be a master creator and, and, and define the, the kind of reality, the living environment that people live in. Our final story is that a new study has revealed that a group of enslaved black Jamaican metallurgists invented a key iron-making process that helped launch Britain as an economic superpower during the Industrial Revolution. This story was covered by The Guardian. The wartime process, which can be seen in several iconic British structures, including the Kew Gardens Temperate House, the original Crystal Palace, and the arches at St Pancras Station, was an innovation that drove Britain to become the biggest global iron exporter during the Industrial Revolution. The process, known as the court process, allowed wrought iron to be mass-produced from scrap iron for the first time. It was widely credited to the British financier turned ironmaster Henry Court, but new research suggests that he actually appropriated the innovation from a Jamaican foundry. The paper, which was published in the journal History and Technology, uncovered that the Jamaican ironworks was making an impressive £4,000 a year by the early 1780s, a value which is equivalent to sort of £7.4 million in today's money. Meanwhile, Court himself was facing bankruptcy. Research shows that Court learned of the Jamaican ironworks from a cousin who regularly transported vessels, cargo and equipment seized through military action from Jamaica to England. Now, soon after this, the British government put Jamaica under military law and Court acquired and shipped the foundry equipment over to Portsmouth where he patented the innovation, claiming all the credit for himself. So, Leo... What's this all about? What do you make of this piece of research? How does it challenge our understanding of British architectural history and indeed the Industrial Revolution as a whole? Well, I have to say, I absolutely, I obviously wasn't aware of uh, much of this history um, until sort of the story came up. And I ended up reading the, the kind of source 
um, monograph by this incredible academic, Jenny Bolstrode at UCL. Um, and it was just absolutely rip-roaring read. I, I can't encourage enough people to read about it. And I felt that there was so many elements of a really brilliant movie uh, in, in here, the kind of struggles of blood and sweat of pioneering early industrial methods, um, slaves bringing their skills and traditions from, from the Gold Coast, the kind of social network-esque theft of a key innovation, uh, the colonial backdrop. Um, you know, if Steve McQueen, I'm sure, listens to the Open City podcast, um, he should make a movie of this. He's already got my ticket. Um, I found it absolutely fascinating. And I, I think these sorts of histories are really important. Uh, you know, an innovation of this kind, the the kind of ironworks that we went on to see at, at Kew Gardens and the Crystal Palace and so on, uh, kind of reminds us that you know success has many parents, like you know, the kind of Watson Crick myth that they invented and discovered DNA alone when there were in fact many people who made key discoveries along along that way. So this story needs to be told far and wide. Yeah, I, I think it's a fantastic story, and there's this sort of myth sometimes that um, it's really only the West that created the Industrial Revolution. And I think this really sort of shines a light on that and, and points out that actually all people everywhere create innovation, industrial innovation, experiment materials, develop new processes. And the, the, this, this myth of the Western Revolution is, is, is deeply racist. In fact, the, the thing that the West is culpable of is stealing the innovations from other people and then using those innovations to expand its, its uh, European empires in this case. So I think it's really instructive in sort of re-understanding the, the, the fuller complexity of history and the culpability of, of, of colonial power in, in that. Um, sort of put, pivoting to like the modern day, how is the built environment ensuring that um, contributions of black people in, uh, in architecture are properly recognised and celebrated today? Well, I think with great difficulty. Um, I think it's, it's such a predominantly middle-class profession. We were talking about David Ajay earlier. Yes, he went through London South Bank University. He was also the son of a very well-traveled diplomat. He was, you know, didn't grow up on the Aylesbury. Um, so I think this is a class issue um, more than anything else. And I think there's an awful lot that commissioners and clients who begin a project, who initiate projects, um, can do to ensure that there's a much greater diversity of backgrounds and experiences um, and perspectives and skills really involved in in designing um, schemes that they want to come forward. Um, and there's a big role, obviously, for the public sector um, with all the accountabilities, additional accountabilities that they have to make that happen. Um, so I think there is a, a, a greater case for higher scoring of, of equality and diversity and inclusion uh, criteria when it comes to scoring proposals for architectural jobs. Um, and there's obviously a huge role for the architecture schools and even further upstream and when you're in your teenage years to, to get people from a much wider range of backgrounds uh, involved. So hats off to you guys at Open City, the Accelerate programme and everything you do. It needs to be happen on, happening on a far greater scale. Finally, just time to look at some of the kind of cultural highlights coming up in London. Sculpture in the City is back. This is the 12th edition of this free outdoor art exhibition all uh, around the, the city of London. Uh, 17 artists from 10 different countries uh, exhibiting work this year. So we have uh, Samu Noguchi's Rain Mountain Duo and Neolithic. 
um, draw inspiration from uh, ancient forms and modern technologies, as well as the artist's own Japanese and American cultural inheritances. Uh, and there's a at 120 Fen Church Street, Mika Rottenberg's single channel video installation, Untitled Ceiling Projection from 2018, captures vibrantly coloured light bulbs being smashed over a clear table. Um, so all sorts of wacky art. <laughs> Sculpture and City is usually nuts, in my opinion. There's all sorts of crazy um, types of public art on display, uh, well worth kind of having a poke around. They usually do some free public tours, uh, often during the Open House Festival, uh, but they'll probably have some at other times as well. And, of course, Herzog de Miron are opening a massive exhibition at the RA um, on the 14th of July. I haven't seen it yet, but I'll let you know uh, what I make of it when I do. Leo, it's been a huge pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for bringing so much um, deep knowledge about the housing uh, sector and what can be done to sort it out. Um, where can our listeners follow your your writing, your work, your ideas, your your punditry? Um, I I write here, there, and everywhere on my own named Twitter accounts. You're still on Twitter. I am still on Twitter, Leo underscore Pollack, <laughs> my uh, one and only Twitter Keep, Keeping the platform going. Absolutely. Um, so that's where I, I opine, um, but I'm not a prolific user of, of that, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, come back on the show another time and they can follow you then. Thanks very much. See you next time. Thanks very much. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City made in association with the 20th Century Society and the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which reports on all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chatter and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible and equitable. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.